All right. Whoa. All right. So, um, you have your questions? Everybody have your questions? Okay. Any questions to start out from chapters 30 to 31? We didn't have a chance to discuss that. That was the night that we went to the Christmas concerts. And I know that was a couple weeks back. So, uh, But if there was anything that stood out to you from that passage that you want to discuss briefly or any questions, we can certainly have a look at that. Yes? Yeah, we are going to actually see those household idols again in chapter 35, verse 2. Jacob said to his household and all who were with him, put away foreign gods which are among you. So I think he clearly becomes aware of it, at least by that point in their journey. But yeah, at the beginning, it's like she steals it, nothing happens. Why do you think it's in the text then? What is it saying about her or about the circumstances or... Why is it even recorded if there's no immediate consequences? That's a wider, wider relationship with the, the father later. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, both those things, right? The fact that she is happily, happy to deceive her father uh, shows, I think, some more issues that are going on in that family because Rebecca was her aunt showed the same sort of attitude, right, toward Isaac. And now her niece is showing the same attitude toward her father. And like Jonathan pointed out, her relationship with God, if she is stealing these idols, you know, I think I mentioned this briefly. Some people were like, well, she's stealing them so that she can say that she has a right to the inheritance. But they're leaving the land of the Arameans, so it's not like she has any claim on inheritance there from her father. Any inheritance that she's going to have is going to come through Jacob. So it doesn't make sense that she's stealing him to claim inheritance. It just seems like a little bit of a petty move of either because she thinks the idols have some power and she wants it with her, or she's taking some revenge on her father for the way that she's been sort of shuffled around and made second place and all those sorts of things, right? And that, that conflict between her and Leah. So, yeah, that's, that's definitely interesting. And these are the details that you see them there, and... I think there are good things to think about. It's just a matter of saying, well, which things do we have time to look at on a Sunday morning? That's where I think it's good to have these times because we can sort of talk through them a little bit more. Anything else from chapters 30 and 31? The main point we were looking at from that passage was this idea that in this case, when Jacob leaves Esau, he's clearly in the wrong. When he comes to Laban... We can question whether all of his methods were entirely honest, but generally speaking, he's the one who's doing right, and Laban's the one who's taking advantage of him. And that's what we see all throughout those chapters. And then at the end of it, God judges rightly between the two of them. So, All right, uh, moving on to question two. What's the similarities between the beginning of chapter 32 and uh, what happened with Jacob, his dream, before he left the land of Canaan? What's the same between the two things that he sees? Jonathan? Okay. And the angels were, if nothing else, a sign of what? 
God's intervention, God's presence, something along those lines. So picture yourself as Jacob. You're leaving the land of Canaan. You get this vision of God and angels in his presence. You come back to the land, same thing. What should that potentially do as far as your thinking and your, what you're feeling and what's going through your mind? Yeah, God's speaking to me, God's with me, you know, that sort of idea. Which is interesting, right after that happens, what, is, what two things does he do? Okay. Good, yeah. Names the place. And then it seems like that sort of emboldens him to send these messengers to Esau. So um, that's kind of the next thing that happens in the story. What's similar between Jacob's response to the threat of Esau and Isaac's response to the problem of not having any children, which is a threat, we could say, to the promises that God's made, both of them? What's similar in the way they respond to these threats? Raiden, what, what do both of them do, Isaac and Jacob? What does Isaac do when Rebekah can't have kids? He prays. And what does Jacob do when he thinks Esau is going to get him? He prays. Okay? So I think that's a good, a good reminder for us as well. Um, because, remember how we talked about the life of Isaac? It seemed like it was like this. It was going well, it was going well, it was going well. And then we come to the later part of Isaac's life, and it seems like maybe it takes a little bit of a downward turn, right? But what about Jacob's life? Jacob's life starts at the bottom, and is sort of trending upward, and now he's behaving as Isaac did in the first part of his life. It's just something to, to consider and to think about. Number four, I think, is important. Why does God change Jacob's name to Israel? Is he the same man who left, and in what ways? Okay, good. So there's a connection to the promises God's made to Abraham. Same sort of action. What else? Jonathan? Yeah. Good. So I think we'd have to say he's not the same person in terms of his actions, his character, which doesn't mean that he's perfect, but it does mean that God's done work in him, right? And so I think that's important for us to remember. Did you have some? Okay. Um, number five. What is so surprising about Esau's reactions to meeting Jacob? So what is Esau's reaction, and why is that surprising based on how things were left when Jacob left the land. 
Okay. Okay. Right. Right. It's all these terms of affection, five different ways it says he hugged him, he kissed him, he held his neck. I mean, he expects that he's coming with a knife to stab him, and instead he gives him a hug, you know? So, I mean, that's a, a surprising thing in light of how angry Esau was. And I think it has more to do than just a lot of time has passed, because there's people that bear grudges for decades, you know? So it's more than just time has gone on. I think God has done work in this circumstance. Why was it so important to Jacob for Esau to accept his present? Okay. Okay. What would Esau's accepting of the present what what would that show? Okay, he says he has plenty, so that's his initial objection. But if he takes the present, what does it show about the relationship between him and Esau now? Him and Jacob? They're closer. I mean if you have if you have two families that are feuding, for example, and then one extends a gesture of peace to the other, if the other accepts it, it's more than just thanks for the apple pie, right? It's more than just thanks for your help in this circumstance. It's a sign that potentially the relationship is being restored. And so it's not just about the present. It's about does Esau accept Jacob himself, which is another interesting thing in light of the next thing that he says. Why does Jacob say, I see your face as one sees the face of God, you have received me favorably. What's the, why is this important? What's the parallel that he's drawing here? Okay. Yeah. Good. God's kind to Jacob when Jacob doesn't deserve it. Esau's kind to Jacob when Jacob didn't deserve it. And Jacob sees the connection between those two things. And, uh, I mean, that's, that's a pretty remarkable thing. If we can see the connection between what we have received from God and what we then potentially can receive from others in terms of forgiveness. Um, think about the story that Jesus told. There's the guy who had this huge debt. And in the story, the master says, I forgive your debt. Let's say it was a million dollars. I forgive your debt. He goes and finds the guy that owes him 20 bucks. And he's like, pay me the 20 bucks or you're going to jail and your family's going to be slaves and all these sorts of things. Did he get what the master had done for him or did he not get it? He did not get it at all. But if we get it, we're going to forgive the $20 if God has forgiven us the million. We're going to forgive even the great hurts and, and pains that others have caused us if God has forgiven what He has forgiven for us. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's easy. What's still true of Esau at this point? Is he going to get the blessing? No. I mean, Esau's not going to get the blessing. Esau's still going to be second in some respects to his younger brother. That stays the same. 
But what has changed is Esau has perhaps come to terms with that and potentially recognized, even if he's not necessarily following God in the way that Jacob is, he's at least acknowledging that this is what God has purposed and brought about and all those sorts of things. And so um, it's pretty remarkable to see the progression of this story. Any other thoughts on those questions or any other things from the passage before we move on to the application question? Um, when confronted with uncertainty or threats, how do we often respond? So let's start with how we often respond, not how we should respond. How do we often respond? Okay, ignore them, block them, don't think about them. What else? Complain, fear. Yeah. We ought to pray, but many times what we do instead is worry. So, um, I was talking with the kids this afternoon. We were going over the questions a little bit. And I said, if somebody wanted to come take your house, um, what things would be right to do? Humanly speaking, what things would be right to do? Potentially, if you have a claim or a right to avoid them doing that, try to fix it. But... Who is the one who ultimately can work out all those details regardless of which side is in the right? God is. Um, we t I was talking with Maggie. I said, you know, when you fell and hurt your shoulder, it makes sense to go see the doctor, right? And we sort of assume that things will just heal on their own because that's how our bodies work. But who does the Bible say is the one that fixes things like that, Maggie? God does. You know, we just sort of take for granted that it happens, but God's the one who works on those sorts of things. And so in the same way, we ought to have a response of turning to God. Doing the things that make sense that we ought to do, yes, but turning to God. Because as we saw in this story, Jacob made a lot of plans, right? Divided into two camps, sent a whole bunch of presents. What, which of those, th did either of those things change Esau's attitude toward him? No. It was God that changed Esau's attitude toward him, and it's God who protected him. And so, as much as we may try to arrange circumstances to work out the way we want them to work out, God's the one who has ultimate say and is working in those things. Again, we be wise, we do what we're supposed to do, but we recognize we're not the ones ultimately in charge, which is difficult for us to come to terms with, because we want to be the ones in charge, right? Secondly, in what ways do we often doubt God's ability to work change in ourselves or in other people? What are some excuses or ideas that we come up with that we're like, yeah, God can't help that person change, or God can't help me change? It's too hard, okay. Okay, and that's true, but sometimes we, we don't believe that. So why don't we believe that? It doesn't happen when we want it to. That's a good one. What else? What are other reasons that we stop believing God can change people? Jonathan? Okay, it's not important enough for God to pay attention to. Yeah, Paul? Okay. Yeah, it's on me. If I had just tried harder, you know, it would all work out, okay? 
So we, we have all these things maybe going through our minds. Here's this situation that's been the same way for 10 years, 20 years, whatever. Can God really fix it? I've prayed a whole bunch about it and nothing seems to change. Um, I really want this to be the right way, but it doesn't seem to be getting fixed. And it's easy for us at, that, at those points to say, well, maybe God really isn't going to do anything about this. Maybe he can't do anything about this. We wouldn't generally come out and say that, especially not at church or not in a Sunday school discussion. But, but those things go through our minds, right? If you really care about me, God, why is this thing going on in my life? If you know how much I want this family member to be reconciled to me from something that happened a long time ago, why wouldn't you just fix it, God? And so we, yeah, we, we question why it's taking so long, and, and, and so we, we doubt God's ability to work change. But what does this passage show us? He's in control. Can he change people? Yeah, I mean, look at Jacob. And when you look at Jacob, don't be like, well, I'm not like Jacob at all. Um, look at Jacob and say, I'm a lot like Jacob. But God changed him. So God can change me. God can change this person over here. Um, we tend to sort of swing back and forth between extremes when it comes to our view on these things, right? So, uh, yeah, Mike, go ahead. Well, sometimes we do, but we shouldn't, right? <laughs> so along those lines, we have two extremes, right? The one extreme is let go and let God. God will just make it happen when he wants it to happen, so I'm just going to sit here and wait for it to happen. And then the other extreme is I can just sort of make this happen if I just try harder and harder and harder and harder. And the biblical balance between those things meets in the middle and says, apart from God, none of these things will happen. Apart from simple obedience, God's not going to honor the promises that he's made. And so I have to do what God has called me to do and obey what he said to do, but I recognize that apart from his power, that is not enough. And um, so I think that's a good thing for us to keep reflecting on. And then the third one, I think, could be a, a measure of testimony or just something to think about. How have you seen God change you since you became a Christian? anyone would want to share that, would... Okay. Okay. Good. So growing in knowledge of God, what else? Paul, did you have something? I couldn't tell. Okay. What, what, what else are, are ways that our lives change once we know Christ? Mike? Think about Jacob in this story. He's going to meet his brother, perhaps the, what in his mind, the most dangerous circumstance he's going to face. He's dragging his leg behind him because he's not ready to fight in the battle. So who's he going to have to trust? 
You have to trust in God, right? Paul? My priorities go to church. Okay. Sure. Priorities change. Sure. Anything else? Anything else anyone wants to share on that? Jonathan? Yeah. Sure. Good. And just to kind of pause here for just a moment, because I think it's a helpful thing for us to think about. If you look at someone around you and you say, is this person a Christian? Is there a... Um, uh, you ever tested a battery? You have one of those little voltmeters and you hook it up and it reads out a number and says this number is how much juice is in the battery. Um, I, think for a, I think for a AA it's supposed to be somewhere between like 1.2, 1.3 volts, somewhere in there. So. We don't have the ability to do that in terms of evaluating other people's salvation. We don't have a meter that's going to be like, this person we can say with 93% confidence is a Christian, because that's what the number printout says. <coughs> we can, however, look at people's lives and, and ask this question, which is the last question here on the application question, is there change since this person professed to know God? If God is the one who's working the change, that change can take a little while to manifest itself. Um, if the Holy Spirit is the one who's working in their heart, if there's very little background that they have of even knowing basic truths about God, it's going to take a little bit of time. So we don't want to immediately dismiss that person's profession of faith because it's taking time for much of that change to show forth. On the other hand, if we come over here and this person says, I'm a Christian, but there's no change at all, should we have reason to say, maybe this person's profession is not real? Maybe they, don't, maybe they haven't come to know Christ. I think there's a measure at which we, again, not with 100% confidence because we can't see people's heart, but we say, this person doesn't look like they're a Christian. This person looks like they're a Christian, even though the change is slow and gradual and not like this huge, remarkable transformation. We are called as a church to evaluate when someone says, I'm a Christian, are they or aren't they? Our job is not to say, does this person get into heaven? Our, or is this person really and truly know God when they stand before Jesus Christ? Is he going to say yes or no to them being in his presence? Our job is not to decide that. Only God can do that. But our job is, as a church, gather together when someone comes and says, I want to join the church. Or when someone says, I'm a member of this church. Paul, the apostle, was talking to the Corinthians, and he says, you have somebody in your midst who says, I'm a Christian, but is living worse than unbelievers. You need to deal with this, because that person's profession is not real if they don't repent of this sin. And so in the same way, God calls us in the church gathered together to look for these signs of change, to encourage them in one another, to be encouraged as we see them. 
But if we know God, if we've encountered God, like this passage talks about, there are going to be those signs of change. Small, large, gradual, quick, we are going to see those signs of change. So I think it's, uh, it's good for us to think about that. Any other thoughts as we, as we wrap up here? Right. Because um, I, I only found that they did die at a certain time, but the timeline didn't seem like they did. Yeah, so if you look at chapter 35, verse 29, it says Isaac breathed his last and died. So Isaac's death is recorded in chapter 35. So not yet. Isaac is still alive. And then Rebecca. You know, I'm trying to remember offhand if it records specifically when Rebecca dies. I feel like that was... I'm trying to find it here. We see a record of, Re of Rebecca's nurse Deborah dying in chapter 35 and verse 8. I don't see a record of Rebecca dying just skimming quickly through the passage, but at the very least, Isaac is still alive. So. But yes, I mean, those times certainly do cause us to pause and to reflect, for sure. So. Anything else? No? Okay. All right, let's uh, pray. And then we will sing our last song together. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to look at these truths from your word tonight. We pray that we would be encouraged by the hope that your power can change us and change those around us through the gospel, through the process of sanctification, through anticipating being in your presence when this change will be made perfect. Lord, help that hope to encourage us to keep serving you faithfully, to keep praying fervently for people and for ourselves, and to continue to be encouraged as we see you work in our lives. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.